2: Twilight is closing in. You can probably hear that we've lit our fire. Though the lanes and shady banks are speckled with snowdrops and the first daffodils are starting to peak above ground, there's still a bite in the air and a cold puff of visible breath when you're walking. It's still the time of year when we're feeling the need for hibernation, hunkering down and protecting ourselves from the outside world, and the forces of darkness. For ancient civilizations, fire was a symbol of life, light and protection, driving away predators both real and supernatural. A gift from the gods. It's both a beneficial and a destructive force. I've been thinking about the duality between light and dark in stories and how we need both for balance. After all, firelight is elusive, its brightness making the shadows around it all the darker. Our tale today is from our home county of Sussex, an area rich with superstition, folk medicine, and natural features inextricably tangled with legends. So bolt your doors, scatter salt along your window ledges, and gather close around the fire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast.
3: There were three ravens sat on a tree, down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. of them said to his mate where shall we our breakfast take with a down dairy 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 down down
2: hello and welcome to episode one of the three ravens podcast i'm eleanor conlon and i've got my pockets full of feathers and sussex earth under my fingernails (laughs) and I'm coaxing my co-host Martin Vaux away from his volume of Lord Byron's letters to join me.
3: I had a dream but it was not all a dream.
2: Before we get started I'd like to announce our competition, the very first ever Three Ravens card design contest.
3: I'm so excited about this.
2: If you're an artist of any skill level we would love you to send us a design for a greetings card We're especially looking for art inspired by nature and folk traditions. At the end of our first series of 13 episodes, we'll pick our favorite three designs to turn into greetings cards, which will be sold through our online shop for a 50-50 profit share with the winners
3: to enter, just send your work through to us as a jpeg to three podcast at gmail.com, the same place to send feedback or your own folk tales, so we can feature them on one of our episodes of Listener Stories.
2: So today is the 6th of March, which also happens to be St Tibber's Day, which I'm sure all our listeners are busy celebrating. <laughs> Martin, had you ever heard of St Tibber?
3: I have to confess... Not a jittery jot, had I heard of St Tiber.
2: Well, I am interested in St Tiber because she's a Christian saint from an incredibly anti-Christian background. A 7th century Anglo-Saxon saint and abbess Tibba was a relative, possibly actually even a niece, of the pagan king Penda of Mercia, mm. a powerful warrior king who defeated a number of the other Saxon kings and completely dominated the heptarchy. Martin, you have a, a special relationship with Penda of Mercia, don't you?
3: I do because I have played Penda of Mercia in a play and was allowed to be really horrible. Um, which I thoroughly enjoyed it's not my normal mode of operation being cruel and kind of hacking people to bits but you know I got to be mean to everything from little tiny children to uh, my wife in the show to creatures, monsters including like a nine foot tall uh, marsh demon queen so yeah it it was a good time for me
2: and wave a giant axe, of course. And uh, that that portrayal was actually inspired by the stained glass window of Pender in ah, is it Gloucester Cathedral. Mm-hmm. But it's a great depiction of him raising his battle axe over his head. <laughs> so check that out if you're in that neck of the woods. Um, but back to St. Tibber, she is also the patron saint of falconers. Although, I'm not sure how realistic that actually is, as falconry was not popularised in England until at least 200 years after her death.
3: (laughs) Well, I think we have a right to reinterpret and reuse saints. When we need a new kind of religious or spiritual action figure, we can always dip into the bucket of saints and find one and go,
2: "Yeah, yeah, that one could be useful. Absolutely. And all those falconers obviously felt that she was a fine representative for them. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Although Tibbella lived in what's now Rutland, uh, Sussex, or the Kingdom of the South Saxons in her time, is also interesting from the perspective of warring religions. It was the last of the Anglian kingdoms to embrace Christianity and kind of existed at the edges of the faith until it was brought in line by the authority of the medieval church.
3: Ooh, that's interesting. Um, well, with all this in mind, um, shall we release our county crier and talk about Sussex?
2: Yes, let's. For our listeners who might be less familiar with the area, Sussex is in the southeast of England, Bordered by the English Channel to the south and surrounded by Kent, Hampshire and Surrey and you can pinpoint it on our map at threeravenspodcast.com Technically it's now divided into East and West Sussex but rumours of border wars and pudding baking contests which end in bloodshed are greatly exaggerated <laughs> Martin, Sussex is our adopter county what did you know about it before moving here?
3: Well, not very much is the honest answer to that question. I um, I was living in London at the time. I've been living there for about six years and uh, I needed to get out. The city was too much for me. I'm, I'm a country boy, really, at heart. And so I was looking for somewhere that wasn't a million miles away from London to live. And then I learned about Lewis, which is the county town of Sussex, um, or the historic county town of Sussex, I should say, um, and the wild bonfire celebrations that take place there, which reminded me of bonfire celebrations that take place back in my neck of the woods um, because at Ottery St. Mary, there's the tar barrels um, traditions that, that take place down there. And when I found out that there was a town on the other side of the country that did similar mad things, I got very excited.
2: So for those who haven't heard of it, the annual Lewis Bonfire is an amazing local institution celebrated every 5th of November. Sussex on the whole historically sympathised with the Puritan and Parliamentarian movements and the bonfire celebrations honour the memory of the Protestant martyrs who were burned in Lewis in the reign of Mary the First.
3: And what better way of honoring martyrs than everybody dressing up in totally random collections of costumes, building huge effigies of figures from popular culture, and then setting them on a light, I guess, and doing firework displays at various places around your town.
2: Well, I must say, when I was researching Sussex and this week's story, I found the idea of Sussex reluctantly joining the dominant faith practices of the rest of England really fascinating. And something that comes through a lot when researching this county is this notion of rejecting authority. So I think the the Lewis bonfire very much celebrates that idea.
3: Yeah, as do I, kind of in my personal life day to day. (laughs) (laughs) Our
2: local proverbial saying in Sussex is we won't be drove, meaning we won't be led or driven, presumably to do that which we don't want to do. And you can still sometimes find examples of nineteenth-century pottery flasks in the shape of pigs, with the motto inscribed on them. So pigs are respected in Sussex for their independent spirit, and
3: rightly so. I'd say
2: absolutely. Uh, so something to look out for next time you're in an antique shop and looking for a, a special Mother's Day gift. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so the phrase really reflects this dissatisfaction with control. Um, in the Middle Ages that would have been with manorial control, and Sussex people definitely made their feelings felt in the thirteen eighty one Peasants Revolt and also in Jack Cade's Rebellion of fourteen fifty. Nice. E- Earlier than that, so Simon de Montfort also led conflicts against Henry the Third, who was his brother, I think, in Sussex, and that's, um, that's where the Battle of Lewis, which was actually a major conflict of the 1260s, was held. And I think that's still celebrated in Lewis today. There's a, I know that there's a, a 1264 ale, which yep. um, the local brewery, has well, created. There's
3: also reenactments, and if you go to Lewis Castle, then they've got a kind of uh, uh, an interesting model of the town which sort of lights up and explains different events um, during the town's history, and it's featured quite prominently. In there, I've also been researching um, up around Leicestershire, and that's where Simon de Montfort hails from. So yeah, I'm quite plugged into the Simon de Montfort story. The quite moment.
2: an interesting guy. We should we should do a Simon de Montfort episode. I think. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I actually grew up near Lewis, um, and that saying, the We Won't Be Drove saying, has been adopted by the local bonfire Societies and also by the Harvey's Brewery, the, the creators of the 1264 Ale, who have their main site there. Interestingly, Harvey's is very connected to its traditions, and Harvey's beer is still locally delivered using a horse and cart which i love and actually it is about the best way to navigate the cobbled streets and the steep hills of the town and it's probably easier to park
3: (laughs) there are some lethal roads in lewis i remember having had a few um larga uh one february and not really knowing quite where i was going and ending up on a street that if i had proceeded would have just been sort of slippery as death. I you would have, you gone, would have died. Yeah, broken neck, no, no, no question.
2: Luckily, Sussex has you covered there because there is an amazing undercurrent of superstitious practice in our county's history, and especially the use of folk medicine and natural remedies. There are some pretty incredible cures which originate from Sussex, Personal favourite of mine is a recipe from the 16th century Plumpton medicine man, John Maskell, check him out, okay. <laughs> who recommends distilling glowworms in wine as a cure for drunkenness and lust. Martin, would you try that?
3: I mean, as I'm getting older, I have to say the hangover is becoming more and more a feature of my life. So I think for the uh, hangover cure properties alone, I would probably... Uh, at least have a, a sip I think I have my lust broadly under control if I had broken my neck on that street though, do you think they would have had a poultice
2: for me or do you think it Absolutely. would have been I'm sure <laughs> that the leeches would have helped um, <laughs> if you have any amazing folk cures that you've heard of do send them in to us we would love to hear from you for sure. um, and also about any ethical suppliers of glowworms <laughs> Our county's also known, and I love this, as Silly Sussex. Is that a good nickname for a place? Well, it is, although it's difficult to move away from the idea that it refers to the foolishness of its inhabitants. But the phrase actually comes from the old English word salig, which means holy or blessed.
3: Yeah, blessed Sussex sounds a bit better, I
2: think. I think so too. And it also has connections with the term seelie, which is used in association with the world of fairies, or actually as they're known in local Sussex dialect, Pharisees.
3: What? Fairies of Pharisees?
2: Absolutely. So if you're reading a Sussex folk tale that's been recorded from the oral tradition and you see a reference to Pharisees... That is not the um, the ones you'd find in the Bible. Wow. I, I don't I don't think they are. I mean, that could mean a complete rereading of the Bible if the two are connected. But no, it's a it's a local dialect word for fairies, and
3: a total reimagining of fairy costume. I think.
2: Yes, let's just sit with that for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> now there is an absolute wealth of folklore from Sussex, from stories attached to particular geographical features to traditional beliefs and magical practices, to seasonal observances and rhymes, sayings and anecdotes. Sussex has a number of chalk marks connected to Neolithic man, including the white horse at Littlington and the long man at Wilmington. There's a lot of tales about the long man of Wilmington, He was a gigantic man chalked on a hill with two large staffs in his hand. My favourite is that it marks the site of the body of an early giant who was killed in a battle with the furl giant, Ooh, another giant. That's super
3: cool. I mean, giant fights are a feature of folklore, it feels like,
2: Absolutely. all
3: over England. Um, that's super, super interesting. I will put a picture of the Long Man of Wilmington up on our website for those of you who are interested.
2: And What I find quite Interesting is that there's no long man of furl, so we can only presume that he survived that battle and is still around today.
3: I would explain an awful lot of strange goings on around
2: here. <laughs> there are a lot of tantalising stories, that's for sure, from the golden calf of Trundle to the baby-eating ogre of Hellingly. But something which comes up consistently around here is the presence of the devil and his connection with topographical features.
3: Ooh, that's super interesting. I mean, I'm very, very interested in old devil stories as well as new devil stories, because the old devil was a bit of a pathetic figure in many of the tales.
2: Absolutely, and we'll be talking about that a bit more. Um, it's easy to outwit the devil mm. in older stories. Yeah. Um, there's actually a brilliant saying from around here that the devil actually rarely ventures into Sussex because people in Sussex will make puddings out of anything. And the devil's afraid, is worried about being turned into a pudding. So he doesn't come here. Oh, that's so awesome. So if you want to see off the evil one, uh, get baking. Yeah, nice. <laughs>
3: but, uh, get baking generally. I mean, obviously, we all need an extra bit around the middle,
2: I think. <laughs> pudding tarot notwithstanding, there are many marks of the devil's presence on the landscape We've got the Devil's Ditch, which runs from Halnecker to West Stoke. There is a Devil's Bog in the Ashdown Forest. Got my foot stuck in that once. Not a pleasant experience. (laughs) Would not recommend. A spot called the Devil's Book, which is at the foot of Mount Cabin. And there are four Bronze Age barrows known as the Devil's Humps. And quite a few more besides. I have
3: to say, just about you getting stuck in bogs, you do tend to end up in water unintentionally.
2: I do this periodically, Mm. yes.
3: Withy gathering is a a treacherous business. Withy gathering
2: is a treacherous business. Listeners, be aware. (laughs) So today's story is about one of the devil's most famous contributions to English geography. I'm going to say it. Uh, Set on the South Downs, north of Brighton. Many moons before the bosom bell was lost, and long before Bonnie Prince Charlie hid in a yew-tree near St Leonard's, this tale of chalk and wave rippled over the downland. I know it's true, for a man my great-grandfather knew saw it all happen. In that time, a tide was turning in the hearts and minds of the people of Sussex. The old faith had woven its tapestry of gods there for a while, but now the new faith had dyed the cloth. The devil was deeply angered by the Wealdon folk's adoption of the new teachings, and he was trying every trick he could think of to sow doubt and confusion. You may have heard of the one he tried over in Mayfield against Archbishop Dunstan. Now, Dunstan was a man of the church, but he was also a skilled metal worker and smith. One day, when he was hard at work making shoes for horses, the devil came to tempt him, disguised as a lovely woman. She chatted and flirted with Dunstan, but as the talk grew ever more lewd and wild, he began to guess the truth. So he kept on working at the forge, while the devil sidled closer and closer, and stroked his arm, and made all manner of suggestions." But Dunstan snatched his red-hot tongs right from out of the fire and pinched the woman's nose between them. She shrieked and writhed, and then she changed her shape once, twice, thrice, each new shape more monstrous, until at last the devil stood before Dunstan in his own terrifying form. Then Dunstan released the tongs, and the devil flew away to Tunbridge Wells to bathe his blistering nose in the waters. It wasn't the last time the devil brushed with Dunstan and it's a fair thing to say that he'd somewhat taken against the village of Mayfield for on their next meeting he told Dunstan he intended to knock down every house there but Dunstan was ahead of the devil again he'd nailed all those horseshoes that he'd forged over the doors of all the houses and that kept the old adversary at bay Now. While the devil was preoccupied with the malice of Mayfield, there was a shepherd by the name of Cuthman, who lived hard by the church in Stenning. Cuthman was no ordinary shepherd. In fact, he had built the church himself from strong new timber, brighter than silver or gold. It's said that he performed all the labor alone, but he struggled to lift the great roof beam. As he was heaving and dragging it up the ladder, a stranger appeared and took his load from him, helping him to finish the church. Afterwards, when Cuthman asked his name, the stranger replied, "'I am he in whose name you are building this church.'" But ever since the church had been finished, Cuthman had lived a simple life in the fields looking after sheep. Many was the hour he spent sitting on a wide stone, chewing on a straw and gazing down to the sea that stone can still be seen today if you walk through cuthman's dell and they do say that miracles happen there i don't know for i haven't seen but i've been told that laying an afflicted limb across that stone will make it well and whole again one afternoon as the light was beginning to die away from the sky and it was getting on for the set of the sun Cuthman was sitting on his stone and watching the place where the sky met the sea. A magpie flew down into the field, then another, then another. Cuthman saw a great dark shape, like a cloud in the sky but with huge leathery wings, and he felt a coldness take hold in his heart. It was a lonely feeling, like fear and grief mingled together. When Cuthman tore his eyes from the shape in the sky, he saw seven magpies sitting in the field about his feet, and he knew then the truth of what he could see in the clouds, for he remembered the old rhyme. One for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a funeral, four for a birth, five for heaven, six for hell, seven for the devil, his own cell. It was the devil, right there in the sky, flying inland from the sea. When Cuthman saw a huge dust cloud to the east of where he sat and vast clods of earth begin to fly into the air, he knew that the old adversary had his eye on an evil more grotesque than any yet seen in those parts. But what should Cuthman do? He couldn't leave his sheep to the mercies of snatchers or wild beasts. So he said his prayers and asked for help. And it seemed to him as though a warm, low voice came to him. It was all at once like the call of the geese flying overhead, and like the voice of his mother singing him to sleep. And that voice told him exactly what to do. So Cuthman took his shepherd's crook, and he drew a wide circle all around his sheep, containing them within an invisible boundary. Then he hastened away as fast as he could in the direction of the dust cloud to see what the trouble was. Now the devil was in a fierce black fury after what had happened with Dunstan and he was in no hurry to ever go back to Mayfield. The air around the devil was blue with the insults he shouted about Dunstan and his burning tongs. But now he would show Dunstan. For he had a cunning scheme to punish all the people of Sussex who no longer cared for him since their conversion to the new religion the devil had decided that he would take his pronged shovel and dig a vast channel a long furrowed trench like a wound through the land from punnings where he'd landed with his hooked wings folded around him right down to the shore when the ditch reached the sea It would let in its raging waters and drown every Christian in Sussex, washing away their churches of wood and stone and sinking every last iron horseshoe to the bottom of the ocean. Then their prayers and their bells would do them no good at all, for he would carry their souls away into his kingdom of fire and sulphur. So the devil grasped his pronged shovel, and he dug and he dug. The first clod of earth he turned up flew to the west and became Chattenbury Hill, and the second flew to the east where it became Mount Haven. Yet another was Sisbury, and further was Rackham Hill. Nobody could say that the devil didn't go about his business with a fearsome will, which may be why we have the saying to work like the devil. He shoveled until his clawed hands burned, he felt an ache in his cloven hooves, "'and yet he kept shoveling. "'While he was working, he felt weighed down "'by the heavy gold in his pockets, "'for it's well known that the devil always carries glittering gold "'and salty soup about him to trade for hungry souls. "'So he took his gold and he hid it deep below Trundle Hill "'and left one of his golden calves to guard it from opportunistic thieves. "'And then he kept on digging his trench.' doggedly determined to wash away Sussex and all its God-bothering girls and Bible-bashing boys. Night had come down dark and heavy while the devil worked. The hedgerows were full of snuffling moles and shrieking foxes, frightened at what the devil was doing to their homeland, and with no moon the only light was from the luminous eyes of owls watching for prey. By that time, Puffman had walked the long miles from Stenning to Punnings and the sight of the devil's big dig. He saw at once what the devil was up to, and he felt that cold and grieving feeling about his heart once more, as though a red claw was choking the life from him. But he beat his shepherd's crook three times against the ground, once for Father, once for Son, and once for Holy Ghost, and that gave him the courage to tap the devil on his burning hot shoulder, so hot that it scorched the skin from Cuthman's finger end what are you digging there so busily devil said Cuthman chewing on the end of a straw and trying for all the world to make it seem as though he was just passing the time of day I'm digging a channel to let in the sea and carry thy soul away from thee said the devil wiping steaming sweat from his dripping brow you'll be at it a long time said Cuthman "'sounding as disdainful as he could, "'even though he was sore afraid to see how much the devil had already dug of the great deep valley. "'I'll be done before the dawn,' said the devil, "'and the sun will bleach your bones when they wash up on shore and beach.' "'I'm not so sure about that,' said Cuthman. "'Seems to me as though you've a long way to go yet.' "'I tell you what, how about a wager?' The devil stood back from his digging and leaned on his spade, for, as we all know, he cannot resist a wager, a trade, or a gamble of any sort. "'I'm listening,' said the devil. "'I'll bet that you can't dig all the way to the sea by morning,' said Cuthbert, pointing down in the direction of the coast. "'Done!' said the devil right away. For he'd already dug a fair few metres along, and he knew that he had half a black sheep still left in his pocket, ready to gobble down and bolster his strength for a long night's work. You've not heard the rest of it yet, said Cussman. If you don't succeed, and you haven't dug all the way to the sea by morning, then you're to fly back to where you came from, and not trouble us here again. The devil laughed a sound like the rumble of coals falling into the fireplace, for he knew it would be an easy task for him. The stars had only just begun to show their shapes against the blackness of the sky, and there were many hours yet left of night. "'And if I do succeed,' said the devil, "'I'll take your soul in payment too.' Cuthman neither agreed nor disagreed to that directly, but he did point out that if the devil succeeded, then he and his soul would be washed away anyway. "'But never pray as you're being drowned,' said the devil, "'or I won't have my sport at all.' Cuthman made no promises about that. Instead, he said to the devil that he would let him get on, as it wouldn't be a fair bargain to keep him talking all the night and waste his time." The devil thought this showed a far more reasonable spirit than he could have expected under the circumstances, and made a few flattering comparisons between this mild mannered young man and the tongue wielding Dunstan of Mayfield. Tipping his hat to Cuthman, he went back to his digging with a fresh will. As soon as the devil's back was turned, Cuthman started running across the fields to the east, in the direction the morning sun would rise. Soon enough, he came to a cottage all shut up for the night and knocked loudly on the door pounding on it fit to break it down until a window opened and a young woman put her head out what's the meaning of all this noise said she let me in said cuthman the devil's digging a trench to drown us all and we've got to stop him now the young woman whose name was ursula had not got to where she had in the world by blindly trusting in the words of strangers She had the freehold of her own home and twenty chickens besides, and she thought to herself that this was the oldest trick of all, a young man trying to gain entrance to her home in the most shameless way. But even as she thought this, it seemed to her that the cross hanging on her wall began to glow with a golden light, and out of the light came a voice. It was huge, like the sigh of the distant sea, and tiny like the cry of a newborn chick, and it told her to trust the man at the door and let him in. So Ursula unfastened the door and let Cuthman in, and Cuthman explained his plan to her. On his signal, she was to light a candle and set it on her window sill, then to hold a sieve up in front of it to make a dimly glowing globe of light. Ursula took up a sieve and lighted her candle from the low-burning fire. "'and carried it over to the sill. "'While she held the sieve there, "'Cuffman went out into her yard "'to where the sleeping cockerel sat. "'He struck a cockerel a blow on his feathered neck, "'enough to knock him from his perch "'and startle him awake. "'As the cockerel fell, he crowed, "'loud and harsh.' Well, Cuthman said another prayer, and it was as though he'd set a cheese in motion rolling down a hill, for all the cockerels across the length and breadth of the weald set up a riotous crowing, even though it was still the middle of the night. The noise was loud enough to startle the devil into dropping his pronged shovel. When he looked around, he saw the pale glowing light of Ursula's candle behind the sieve, and he mistook it for the rising morning sun that and the sound of the cockerels crowing all around him echoing off the downs was enough to convince him that morning had come and he was nowhere near finishing the trench down to the sea which would drown all the god-fearing folk of sussex but a bargain is a bargain and once struck it cannot be wriggled out of not even by the devil himself the devil cursed and flailed that he was bound by the wager and had to fly back to his own land, leaving his work half done. As he flew off to the north, he met his wife coming in the opposite direction to see how he'd been getting along with turning the tide against Sussex. When she saw that the work was unfinished and that her husband was spitting and cursing and foaming at the mouth, she began at once to bawl at him and berate him using all the worst words she'd picked up on her travels throughout the world. The devil swore and spat at her, but she took her great cudgel and beat him about the ears with it until he was quite giddy. The pair of them carried on for so long that way that neither noticed the sky wasn't light and day had not yet broken, and so Cuthman's trick passed without them noticing at all. Eventually, they hounded each other so bitterly that both dived down into the crust of the earth to escape each other, flinging up huge clods of turf behind them. And those mounds are known as the devil's grave, and the devil's wife's grave, to this very day. As for Cuthman, he said goodbye to Ursula, and went back to his home. And when he returned, he found that an invisible hand had kept his sheep within the circle he'd drawn upon the ground, and none had been lost to wandering, or to wolves. And that's how the people of the Weald escaped being washed away into the waves, And how Devil's Dyke was dug in a single night. And so my tale is told. And now it belongs to you. So Martin, what are your thoughts about Cuthman outwitting the Devil? Well,
3: my first response is... Poor devil. What a difficult time he had in that story. I feel like Cuthman and Ursula, firstly, they had help, right? They had divine intervention on their side, which is you know, a bit of a drag for the devil. Um, I also feel like Mrs. Devil could have perhaps been more supportive
2: of her spouse. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe she fits into that Lady Macbeth archetype that we talked about earlier. Yeah, in
3: episode zero. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think it's really interesting that in so many of these tales the devil is this personified figure who can be outwitted and often in these instances a figure of fun or mockery and it's worth remembering that as an invisible and malign force the devil was terrifying to early christians country people who believed absolutely in his influence on and human and animal sickness and the world around them. Oh, it
3: totally makes sense. I mean, I think even in our times as we're living now, there are so many awful things that happen. It's almost inexplicable. You kind of want to blame some kind of force, don't you? And why not give it a face or a name?
2: Absolutely. And you can still see evidence of charms against the devil today there are very few Sussex pubs which don't have a horse brass or two and they were meant to to ward off the devil and it's still quite common to see lucky horseshoes pinned over people's doors oh yeah that's <laughs> hangover from St Dunstan
3: all over the country that happens down in Somerset where i'm from um, that is that is common as muck as they might say
2: <laughs> but within uh, the folktale canon at least there are loads of examples of the devil being deceived And normally by quite comical means, actually, um, there is an entire subsection of the Arne Thompson Uther Tale Type Index devoted to deceiving the devil by breaking wind.
3: Oh, fantastic. Yeah,
2: it's a it's a farting subsection. And um, while Cuthman doesn't quite do that, the story definitely fits into that tale of the stupid ogre or giant or devil type
3: yeah for sure i i also have a a story coming up later in the series which is a a similar kind of outwitting or tricking the devil kind of tale i have to say mine doesn't feature farting either and i'm now rethinking my are are you you
2: gonna yeah readdress that maybe For our listeners who haven't come across the ATU Index, which I just mentioned, it is a catalogue of folktale types used in folklore studies, and it is absolutely fascinating. I seriously recommend looking that up and saying goodbye to all of your free time. Oh,
3: yeah, you can get lost in that rabbit warren of of all the different (laughs) types of variations on the similar themes, which I think is something that's going to come up in this podcast uh, across our many episodes.
2: Definitely. Um, If you are into the the whole farting subsection, there are also (laughs) various songs and ballads um, from usually 16th and 17th century, I think, um, which take Outsmarting the Devil as their subject. My favourite one has got to be The Gelding of the Devil, uh, which dates from the 17th century, but it is on Spotify, not an original recording, I hesitate to say. Um, <laughs> we will put a link on the website to that so you can treat yourself to a listen right after the episode. Uh, can we go so far as to call it a banger? I think we can call it a banger. <laughs> I think you'll be singing along to that one. <laughs> so I find the association of the devil with pre-Christian religions really interesting because most of them don't actually have that figure so anglo-saxon paganism doesn't really have this binary dark god set in opposition against the light god Mm -hmm. they're a little bit more nuanced than that i mean there are it's polytheism and there are lots of gods who are quite flawed and quite human aren't they in the mythology But early Christianity still manages to make that work for it. Um,
3: I think that's because early Christianity sort of, to a certain extent, grew out of Zoroasterism, where mm -hmm. it is the light versus the dark. That's sort of the the basis of it all, the the first monotheism, as as they call it.
2: The early Christians managed to connect the pagan gods to the devil, So there is an 11th century text called De falsus deus, um, or the false gods, great title, which connects the figures of Mercury, uh, so from the the Roman occupation of Britain, and of Odin, from uh, the sort of Norse paganism, to the devil. Implying that those are figures created by the devil to lead souls astray, essentially.
3: That is super interesting. I love that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, within our own kind of like Western thought, the devil was, I guess, really adjusted in our mindset by Milton, right? So Paradise Lost is the kind of first instance where we, to a certain degree, Get to hear the devil side of things.
2: It's the origin of sympathy for the devil, isn't it? Paradise Lost, when this really quite sexy figure is presented. Book nine of Paradise Lost, ladies, loosen your (laughs) collars. Isn't so much a ferocious beast, but this seductive. Monster.
3: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Which leads me back into Byron. Byron famously was named of the devil's party like Milton was and also from the satanic school of poetry because he was trying to corrupt people and change the way that they thought.
2: Hmm, that's so interesting. So actually what you're saying is the devil is about changing people's thinking
3: definitely the
2: original progressive
3: (laughs) (laughs) well you could make that argument although i have to say in this story not so much more about drowning christians
2: (laughs) yes um a blunt instrument approach Uh, perhaps (laughs) he would have benefited from a little bit more nuance (laughs) yeah maybe Incidentally, there is another great story about St. Cuthman, um, which I didn't include, but maybe he should be nominated as the patron saint of invalid transport because he is actually supposed to have pushed his sick mother in a wheelbarrow from Devon to Sussex, Whoa. waiting for a sign from heaven to show him where to stop. Um, right, essentially. okay. Um, so in addition to being very muscular... yeah the power of Cuthman's faith was sufficient for him to push a wheelbarrow all the way from Devon to Sussex and the the story goes that the shaft of the wheelbarrow broke at Stenning and that's where he built his timber church on the spot and if you go to Stenning today um there's actually a picture of Cuthman pushing his mother in the wheelbarrow on the town sign
3: (sighs) this raises many questions for me Uh, first of all Do you think Cuthman actually had his mother's permission to wheel her in the wheelbarrow? Or just like, right, Mum, I've had enough. Get in the wheelbarrow. We're off.
2: I think if he didn't have her permission, that would have been a difficult journey from Devon to Sussex, to say the least. Um, Well, the
3: other thing I was going to say is, do you think that that was an easy journey either way? Because let's just say that your mother was really, really happy to be in a wheelbarrow. (laughs) Trying to take her from all the way from, from Devon to Stenning. I mean, my goodness, you'd have to have, I think, either a really, really close and supportive relationship with your mother or to absolutely despise one another uh, to make that work.
2: And that's not taking into account the quality of the roads in the Middle Ages. No, quite right. Well, no, he's pre-Middle Ages, isn't he? He's Saxon, so do we even have roads? I'm not sure. If (laughs) anyone can enlighten me about Saxon road design, I'd be delighted. One thing's (laughs) for sure, though,
3: like... Cuthman is gonna be stacked, isn't he? Like absolute rock solid. I
2: think so. I mean mother pushing aside, he also single handedly built a church with some last minute assistance from St Andrews, so <laughs>
3: nice. So along with St Tibba, we've got another pin up. Um she's got Falcons. Yes. Uh, he's got huge biceps. <laughs>
2: Oh, we should tell the Catholic Church. (laughs) Back to the devil, though. Uh, (laughs) There are some other brilliant Sussex taboos and customs associated with the devil. Go on. So, for instance, you should never eat blackberries after Michaelmas. Never
3: would, never would.
2: No, because it's said that the devil goes by and spits on every single bush.
3: Um, well, yeah, as, I mean, of course.
2: <laughs> <laughs> which I guess originates from the fact that blackberries aren't going to be that great after Michaelmas, which usually falls in October. Yeah. But I, I love that there's that. Oh no, the devil would have corrupted the fruit after mm. that point. So even well, if it looks nice, it's it's going to be bad. I
3: mean, last year when we went out blackberry picking, that they they had all had a weird year they because, had. Of, because of all the weather, and they did look like corrupted and twisted. So yeah. Do,
2: can... you, do you think that the devil was responsible? <sighs>
3: I mean, there's a good chance, isn't there? Certainly, if we think about it metaphorically, you know, climate change.
2: Mm. <laughs> oh, we could dig into this for hours, I think. <laughs> the devil has, has quite a lot of interest in kind of rural foraging, actually. Oh, um, yeah. yeah? Yeah. In the 19th century, there was a common belief that if a girl went to gather nuts on a Sunday, right. the devil would appear to give her a hand. Um now <laughs> as he was meant to take the form of her sweetheart and make himself useful by carrying the bag of nuts it's kind of easy to see how going nutting might <laughs> have been a rural euphemism for something else. Now, I have
3: absolutely <laughs> no idea what you are talking about.
2: Well that's probably for the best. <laughs> we haven't um we haven't talked about Chanctonbury Ring yet, have we? Oh
3: god, and... our history with Chanctonbury <laughs> Ring.
2: So in the story, Chanctonbury Ring is one of the big mounds of earth that the devil dug up in the creation of Devil's Dyke. But we had a bit of an adventure with be Ring last year, didn't we?
3: We did, because every year at Halloween, we like to go somewhere spooky. So, I mean, earlier that day, we'd been to the Wheel and Museum, which is supposed to be haunted. In the past, adventures have taken place at Pluckley in Kent or the Priest House at West Hothlai. Um So, yeah, there we were trying to get to Chanctonbury Ring only it was very dark and very slippery and very cold and uh, in the end we figured if we continued then maybe we'd be able to get there but there would be actually no way of us getting back safely. So yeah, I think the,
2: the only way we would have been able to get back safely is actually by summoning the devil, <laughs> which is a thing you're supposed to be able to do at Chang To Be Ring by running seven times anti-clockwise around it and then uh, the devil appears and will offer you a bowl of soup.
3: Which is kind of what we needed because it was a little bit
2: nippy. Um, I mean, he will take your soul, but yeah. I guess it's really great soup.
3: Well, you'd hope so. Um, <laughs> I mean, Chang To Be Ring, like, It's such an interesting place. Its history is fascinating. It's an ex-Roman fort. A boar cult was focused around Charterbury Ring. Um, And the only reason we know about this is because of this slightly mad rich bloke called Charles Goring in the 18th century who... When he was 16, was inspired to plant trees all around the edge of Chanctonbury Ring so that he could see them become grown trees by the time he died. And um, as he got older, the trees started to, the roots started to turn up all of this kind of archaeological
2: wow. remnant
3: which then prompted people to start to investigate and and see what they could see there. And then it's been excavated loads of times over the years.
2: That's incredible. Yeah, cool, Great story. Well, we're going to have to have another go, maybe at midsummer when we can actually see to get up and down. I (laughs) will make sure we go with
3: empty stomachs so that we can get some nice soup.
2: Great. (laughs) Don't pack a picnic. The devil's got you covered. (laughs) But to return to the notion of balance, I think the dichotomy between destruction and creation works really well in the case of Devil's Dyke because the devil digs a trench to drown the people of the Sussex Weald but within the story you've got the creation of all of these landmarks like Chactaboo Ring and Sisbury Ring Uh and Mount Haven and the dyke actually has a really nice history of bringing communities together in the Victorian period, it actually became a tourist attraction, which looks amazing. There there are some photographs. And it had a cable car and a fairground and its own funicular railway that went up and down. <sighs> and it just looks lovely. <laughs> so
3: shamefully, I have never been. So shall we
2: go? We can go. Okay, I think there's go. a National Trust gift shop. Nice. Today, there's there's not a funicular railway anymore, sadly.
3: I love a gift (laughs) shop, though, you know me.
2: Absolutely, he does love a gift shop. (laughs) So, Martin, where will we be wandering to next week? And what can we look forward to?
3: Well, we are going to the county of my birth. We're going to Somerset, and I've got a witch story next week.
2: Lovely. I will get to work brewing the apple cider for our episode (laughs) recording. (laughs) In the meantime, if you would like bonus content, including exclusive episodes, our monthly Three Ravens newsletter with a rundown of the month's English folk customs, a magic spell for the month, text versions of the stories, and every main and bonus episode of the podcast completely ad-free, then please consider joining our Patreon for just $3 a month, and you can do that by visiting patreon.com. Slash Three Ravens Podcast.
3: Do also check our website at www.threeravenspodcast.com, where we host our archive of all past episodes and hopefully, fingers crossed it's working, to visit our online shop for t shirts and other Three Ravens merchandise.
2: If you have your own folk tale that you'd like us to feature on the podcast, then do write it up and email it to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to feature it in one of our upcoming listener episodes. Until next time then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way.
3: And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods
2: Thanks and credit go to Jacqueline Simpson's The Folklore of Sussex, Andrew Allen's Dictionary of Sussex Folk Medicine, and the Arne Thompson Uther Index, an absolute essential for folktale enthusiasts. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon, which is available to listen to on Spotify. Our logo and graphic design work is by Ollie James Dare, and the Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production. God sent every gentleman such hounds, such hawks, and such lemmings with a down, derry, derry, derry down, down.